Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Last Sunday, I was preaching from the Gospel of John. This is the Epistle of John. Uh, last Sunday, I was preaching from John chapter 1, and we considered a few things about uh, what the Apostle John had written concerning Jesus. Uh, John began his biography of Jesus by explaining that Jesus is God, Jesus has existed from all eternity past, and Jesus is a creator of all things. Um, Then John proceeded to tell of the incarnation of Jesus, the taking on of humanity, and how he was received by the people of this earth. John gave three categories of people and their different receptions of him. Uh, The first is the people of the world. John wrote in John 1 verse 10 that Jesus came into the world, but the world did not know him. The second group is the Jews. John wrote in verse 11 that Jesus came to his own people, but his own did not receive him. And the third group of people is written about in verses 12 and 13. And John describes them as people who are born of God. And because they are born of God, they received Jesus and believed in his name. John counts himself amongst the members of this third group, the people who receive Jesus and believe in his name. So he writes in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And we beheld his glory. The word beheld means to see something with your physical eyes, but to see it with understanding. It's possible to see something that Um, it's possible to see something with your physical eyes and yet not understand what you're looking at. As I show you this schematic of a uh, computer power supply, I think all of you are able to see it quite well with your eyes. The question is, do you understand it? I think very few of you understand it. Even if I show you a very simple schematic of a light emitting diode uh, probably a few of you may understand this but not many people understand it and what the apostle John says is that he beheld the glory of Jesus and, he, and, and in, the doing, in saying this he's saying two things he's saying that he saw the glory of Jesus with his physical eyes and he's also saying that he understood he understands what he was looking at, what he was seeing. He was seeing the glory of Jesus Christ and it was made evident to John. He, was clear, he clearly saw and understood that Jesus is the king of glory. Now, another word that the Bible uses for making uh, something known is the word manifest. And that's the word that appears in verse five of our sermon text. John, the same author, writing about something very similar, he says, and you know that he, referring to Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And we understand this to be saying that Jesus is both seen and known by those whose sins he has taken away. Jesus is both seen and known by those whose sins he has taken away. And John makes a very similar point back at the beginning of the same epistle. 
In 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2, he writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was, the, which, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Do you hear what John's saying? He's saying Jesus Christ was manifested to us. Another way of saying, we beheld his glory. We've looked upon him. We understand that this is what God has revealed to us, the son of glory, Jesus Christ. But you might ask the question, why? For what purpose was Jesus manifested to us? And verse 5 of our sermon text answers this question. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. To take away our sins. That's a great answer, which is deserving of our full consideration. But before we go too far into that consideration, notice that verse 8 speaks about the purpose of Jesus being manifested as well. But it gives a different answer. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That he might destroy the works of the devil. And so which is it? Was Jesus manifested to take away our sins? Was he manifested to destroy the works of the devil? Or is it both? And I submit to you that John is is giving a singular answer the same answer, both in verses five and six, he's merely describing that answer from two different angles. In verse five, John is focusing on what Jesus does for the elect sinner. He takes away the elect sinner's sin. And in verse eight, John is focusing on what Jesus does to our adversary. He destroys the work of the devil. So, but, but we, we can put these together, we can understand that these two are actually describing the same function, function of Jesus. We understand John to be telling us that Jesus destroys the work of the devil by taking away our sins. Jesus destroys the work of the devil by taking away our sins. By making this connection, John is not only giving us a better understanding of of the work that Jesus does, but he's also giving us a better understanding of the work that Satan does. Satan attempts to work in direct opposition to Jesus. Uh, The work of Satan, therefore, is to keep people in their sins. Jesus is manifest to save us from our sins. Satan's work is to keep us in our sins. And he does this by exerting his powerful influence over people. He works upon the lusts of the flesh, drawing people deeper and deeper into sin. He works through the enticements of this world, luring people into all manner of slavery and idolatry. And he cheats people through empty deceit and philosophy that's according to the basic principles of the world, leading people into more and more depraved ways of thinking. And this is the the work Satan performs to keep people in slavery to sin. But as powerful as our adversary is, Christ Jesus is more powerful. He frees his people from our bondage to sin by destroying the work of the devil. Romans 6, verses 5 through 7, describes it in terms of our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. 
For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, referring to Jesus, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who died has been freed from sin. So the devil no longer has dominion over those who have been united to Christ by faith. But that doesn't mean that the devil gives up on those who have been united to Christ by faith. Quite the contrary. He walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he would love nothing more than to devour the children of God. But you ask, how can he devour those who are united to Christ by faith? How can he devour those who have been set free from their bondage to sin by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? The answer, he can't. He cannot devour those who are united to Christ by faith. It's impossible for the devil to devour us. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, Paul wrote in Romans 8 which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that does not mean, brothers and sisters, that you cannot be made to stumble. That doesn't mean that the child of God cannot be partially misled and deceived by the trickery and devices of Satan. One of our adversary's devices is to make us believe that sin still has dominion over us even though the word of God explicitly declares that sin no longer has dominion over believers, Satan insists that it does. He does this by reminding you of all the the terribly sinful things you've done in your life. He tells you that you're not good enough to measure up to God's standard of righteousness. He tells you that your sins have caused the Lord to become angry. He tells you that uh, he, he tries to make you feel inferior by comparing you to other people who appear to be more righteous than you are. And he tries to make you give up all hope by telling you that you're not worthy of receiving God's favor. This diabolic tactic is better described as deception than a lie. Because it's actually true that your sins have made you unworthy of receiving God's favor. And it's actually true that you cannot possibly be good enough to measure up to God's standard of righteousness. And it's actually true that your sins have caused the Lord to become angry. All of these things are true. You see, when Satan wants to remind us of the terrible things we've done, he doesn't need to make anything up. We've all committed enough real and actual sin in our lives that he doesn't need to lie about it nor does he need to lie about God's displeasure with sin. Satan is only restating what the Bible says when he tells us that God's eyes are too holy to look favorably upon sin. But what the devil does not remind us of is the grace that God gives to his people. Satan takes the truth of your sin and the truth of God's displeasure with sin And he presents these to you in such a way as to make it appear hopeless for you. But but it only appears hopeless because he maliciously and deceptively omits 
God's grace. As believers, our righteous, our righteous standing before God is secured not by ourselves, but entirely by Christ, and it's of God's grace that we receive Christ and his benefits. And so what is grace? How do we define God's grace? Grace is God's favor and kindness shown without regard to the worth or merit of the one who receives it, and in spite of what that same person actually deserves. It's God's favor and kindness shown without regard to the worth or merit of the one who receives it, saying, you don't deserve it. And in spite of what that same person actually deserves, which is the wrath of God. That's what you deserve, but instead of getting the wrath of God, you get the favor of God. That's grace. You've probably heard about the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson was a naturalist, meaning he didn't believe in uh, the preternatural or the supernatural. He thought that Jesus was a good moral teacher and therefore people would benefit from studying the life and teachings of Jesus, but Jefferson didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. He didn't believe in the, the miracles that Jesus performed. And so in 1819, Jefferson compiled a, a so-called Bible by cutting out everything that he considered objectionable in the Gospels. He said that those things only complicated the moral instruction that can be learned from, from Jesus, and so Jefferson just eliminated them. He cut, it out, cut, cut them out. And if you were to pick up a copy of the Jefferson Bible and begin reading it, the things that you would read are true. The things that you would read are true. But you wouldn't have an accurate picture of who Jesus is and what he was manifested to do, not because of what's in the Jefferson Bible, but because of what's not in the Jefferson Bible. The Jefferson Bible has omitted essential truths about Jesus, and it's the omission of those truths that create the deception. Well, this is the same deception Satan is using when he tries to make us think that we're still in our sin. It's what he does not say that makes it so treacherous. It's the omission of God's grace that makes this deception such a terrible distortion of the truth. And by referring to this as a deception, I'm not saying that Satan never tells lies. He does tell lies. He's the father of lies. Nor am I saying that deception uh, is, is not a form of, de, of, of lying. Lies are told by communicating false information and lies are told by communi communicating incomplete information. Nor am I saying that Satan doesn't have other tactics that he uses against believers. Uh, certainly he does. Um, he has a variety of tricks that he uses against us. And this is why 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices, plural. But what I am saying is that one of the signature tactics the devil uses against believers is to try to make us despair of our sin by telling us how unworthy we are. And I'm making the distinction between deception and lying because the sins that he calls our attention to are real. And the displeasure he tells us that God has for sin is real. And this 
tactic, this device that he uses, therefore, can be very effective against us if we lose sight of the very important truth that we've been saved by grace. That we've been saved by grace. God has shown us kindness and favor without regard to our worth or merit and in spite of what we actually deserve from God. There's a statement Peter makes at the beginning of uh, chapter one of his uh, second epistle to the um, second epistle. It's a, it's a relevant statement to the point that I'm making here. In, uh, in 2 Peter 1, verses five through seven, Peter writes to his readers, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Now, uh, there are eight virtues that Peter lists here in these three verses. Faith is the first one, and love is the last one. And Peter is telling his readers that they've already obtained precious faith from the Lord when they were regenerated by his grace. And so now they need to add all these other virtues to their faith. They need to, they, they, they have faith, and now Peter's saying, add to your faith all these other virtues, and ultimately, the last one, uh, the virtue culminates in love. Then in verse nine, Peter writes this, for he who lacks these things, referring to the virtues he just listed, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And brothers and sisters, Peter is warning us of something very profound here, something very significant to our Christian walk. He is saying that it's possible for a Christian to forget that he has been cleansed from his old sins. This happens when a Christian has neglected his sanctification. That is, when a Christian has neglected to add virtue to his faith, to add knowledge to virtue, to add self-control to knowledge, and so on and so on. When a Christian neglects these things, he becomes short-sighted, Peter writes. Short-sighted even to the point of blindness. And when blindness happens, the Christian forgets that he's been cleansed from his old sins. This is when the Christian is especially vulnerable to Satan's deceptive attacks. And the Christian has been uh, neglecting his sanctification, or as the Christian has been neglecting his sanctification, Satan has been seizing opportunities to heap guilt and condemnation upon the Christian. As the Christian is growing short-sighted, as a Christian is, is digressing toward blindness, Satan has been heaping guilt and condemnation upon the Christian. The devil has been reminding him of his sins and of God's great displeasure with sin. But the devil never, never reminds the Christian that God has graciously cleansed him from his sins. And since the complacent Christian has forgotten that God has cleansed him from his sins, he suffers under the harassments of the devil. He begins to experience doubts and insecurity. 
He suffers spiritual oppression within his soul. He wallows in the guilt of his past sins. He questions whether God can truly love a a horrendous sinner like him. He looks around at all the other people in the church and he sees many of them joyfully worshiping God, but he doesn't have that same joy in his own heart. So he thinks to himself, there must be something wrong with me. I don't wake up in the morning and say to myself, oh good, I get to go to the house of the Lord today. A day in his courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. No, for me, the Christian life is more of an obligation than it is a joy. It's more of a duty than it is a privilege. I don't desire to worship God. I don't desire to serve God. I don't desire to pray to God. I don't desire to read and meditate upon his word. I don't do any of these things. And if I do, it's only because I feel obligated. Maybe I've just been deceiving myself all these years. Maybe I've just been pretending to be a Christian. I'm not sure that I'm really saved. If I were to die today, I don't know where I would spend eternity. I don't know whether I would go to heaven or hell. Brothers and sisters, do any of you feel this way? Do any of these thoughts and contemplations resonate with your heart, with your own anxieties? Do any of you question whether God really loves you? Whether he's pleased with you? Whether you're his child? Do you feel burdened by your sins? When circumstances or conversation remind you of something from your past, does a huge wave of shame and guilt ever come crashing over you? Do you ever feel disqualified to come before the Lord in prayer? Do you ever think to yourself, God's not gonna listen to me. I'm just going to make him angry if I ask him for forgiveness again. I've already asked him so many times, and every time I've promised him, this is going to be the last time. I won't do that again. Please forgive me, and and I'll serve you. And, 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 And I've made bargains with God, and yet every time I go right back into my sin. I'm a hypocrite, I'm a sinner. I've totally disqualified myself from ever coming into his presence again. Brothers and sisters, those are the thoughts of a Christian who has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his sins by the grace of God. Those are the thoughts of a Christian who has forgotten, who has become short-sighted, leading to blindness, and forgotten that he has been cleansed from his sins by the grace of God. Those are the thoughts of a Christian upon whom the deceptive tactics of the devil are working. This is what Peter was writing about in 2 Peter 1.9. And this is, uh, if this is you, dear friend, then understand that you've lost the assurance of your salvation. You've lost the assurance of your salvation. And notice I didn't say that you've lost your salvation for that is impossible. What I said is you've lost the assurance of your salvation. 
Those are two very different things. Losing the assurance of your salvation will rob you of the peace you experience as a child of God. It'll diminish your joy in worshiping the triune God. It'll stagnate your desire to grow in your knowledge of the Lord. It'll erode your confidence to pray to him. It'll take away your appetite to read and study his word. It'll even take away your ambition to live your life for him. Because all these things flow out of a heart that's thankful to God for cleansing you from your sins. But if you've forgotten that God has cleansed you from your sins, then where will your gratitude come from? And how much motivation will you have to serve him? The work of the devil is real, brothers and sisters. He'll do everything he can to have you sifted like wheat. Peter understood this. Peter had firsthand experience with this type of thing. And what Peter is telling us is that when you're not diligent about adding to your faith, you give the devil a foothold in your life. That's when you become vulnerable to his deceptive tactics. But as oppressive as his deceptive tactics might be, the devil can never take away the salvation that Jesus has earned for you on the cross. Let me say that again, because this is something every Christian needs to hear and hear again, especially those of you who are experiencing feelings of doubt, defeat, despair, or insecurity. If you've been neglecting your sanctification, you've opened the door for the devil's tactics to oppress you. Uh, you may have, uh, he may have taken away your hope. He may have taken away your peace. He may have taken away your joy, but he can never, ever, ever take away the salvation that Jesus earned for you on a cross. Romans 8.33 rhetorically asks, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is it that condemns God's people? The apostle answers these questions by pointing the Christian back to the manifest work of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Once again, this is rhetorical. The point the apostle is making here is that Jesus is alive in heaven, actively making intercession for you before the Father, actively petitioning the Father to extend his sustaining grace to you so that your faith will not fail. So with the intercession of Jesus, there's nothing that's ever going to be able to separate you from the love of God. And this is such an important point that Paul doesn't feel comfortable stating it only once. He wants to make sure that every believer who's reading Romans 8 fully understands the security that they have in Jesus Christ. So he repeats himself, beginning at verse 37. Yet in all these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, 
nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul could not have written a more comprehensive list of things that uh, are unable to separate us from the love of God. And you'll notice in this comprehensive list, he includes angels, principalities, and powers. That's where Satan and his demons fit in. Uh, So it's not as if Paul was ignorant of Satan's devices when he wrote Romans 8. Quite the contrary, Paul understood Satan's devices very well, but he also understood the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he understood the ongoing intercession Jesus makes for his people. And so the Apostle Paul, like the Apostle John, is amongst those who beheld the glory of Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Paul, like John, was able to affirm that the Son of God was manifested so as to destroy the works of the devil. Which is why Paul tells us that our union with the death and resurrection of Jesus makes us more than conquerors over Satan, his demons, and all of their tactics combined. The Christian life, therefore, must be lived with our focus on the person and work of Jesus. The Christian life must be lived with our focus on the person and work of Jesus. When we focus on what Jesus has accomplished and how the the benefits of his blood, his righteousness, and his intercession are ours by the grace of God, then we have assurance. Then we have joy and we will have peace within our heart and we'll walk in the confidence of knowing that Jesus was manifested to take away our sins. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has already accomplished everything that's necessary to secure God's favor and approval of sinners. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has already accomplished everything that's necessary to secure God's favor and approval of sinners. Living in the finished work of Jesus leads to an assurance that's unshakable, to an assurance that's resistant to the tactics of the devil because it's an assurance that's established in the grace of God and not in the imperfect works and efforts of weary pilgrims. This is why it's so important that weary pilgrims are regularly assembled together for worship. Hebrews 10.24 tells us that when we come together for worship, it's to stir up love and good works in one another. Uh, That's what we're doing here today, brothers and sisters. We are stirring up love and good works amongst each other. So if you've come today and you're feeling depressed or discouraged or anxious or doubtful or overwhelmed, or if you're just feeling a little beat up by the difficulties of life, you've come to the right place. You've made the right decision to come to church this morning. And so often when we're experiencing these these negative parts of our life, we withhold ourselves from church. We withhold ourselves from God's people. We, We draw into seclusion and we pity in our sorrow. But what 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 the, what the Bible tells us, what Hebrews 10.24 specifically is telling us, is that it's during these times of difficulty that we should all the more be in church, all the more be around God's people. Because 
you are exactly where you ought to be right now because this is where weary pilgrims assemble together to stir up love and good works in one another. Now somebody might ask, when and how does this activity of stirring up love and good works happen? Because I've been coming to this church for a while and in fact, I come every Sunday and I can't remember the last time somebody pulled me aside, put an arm around me and gave me a little pep talk. Now, it's a good thing to pull somebody aside, put an arm around them and give them a little pep talk, a Romans 8 type pep talk. Uh, but that's not the only way that we stir up love and good works in each other. Nor is it the primary role of the pastor to do the work of stirring up love and, and good works amongst the people of the congregation. You, brothers and sisters, you, each and every one of you, do this work. And one of the significant ways you do it is through singing. You stir up love and good works when you sing aloud the songs that are sung during worship. This is what it says in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And where does that wisdom go? Well, it goes out in the form of singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, but those Song, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs accomplish something that is specified right here as teaching and admonishing one another. So when you sing out loud with grace in your hearts to the Lord, you're not just singing to the Lord, although you are doing that. You're also singing to the people around you. And this is why the lyrics of the songs that we sing are so important. When you sing those lyrics out loud, you are teaching and admonishing the people around you. And so it's important that what you're singing is, is true to God's word. And this is why the placement of our songs within, the, within our liturgy is so important. There are songs that are appropriate for praising God. And there are songs that are appropriate for confessing our sins to God. There are songs that are appropriate for giving thanks to God. There are songs that are appropriate for committing ourselves to God. And there are songs that are appropriate for giving glory to God. When you sing aloud these songs uh, within their proper context, within the, within the liturgy, you're teaching and admonishing the people who are progressing through that liturgy alongside of you, who are going through the process of praising God and confessing sins to God and giving thanks to God and committing themselves to God and giving glory to God. You're singing words of truth in the form of teaching and admonition. And this is one of the significant ways that you stir up love and good works in one another. So when Satan is trying to make you feel defeated by your sins and he's telling you how unworthy you are of God's love, you need to be assembled together with the people of God. And you need to hear your brothers and sisters in Christ singing to you. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. This 
should stir up love and good works within your hearts, dear friends. This should have the effect of redirecting your thoughts away from the deceptions of the adversary and into the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Because these lyrics are a beautiful articulation of what it says in verse five of our sermon text. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. So brothers and sisters, it's the grace of God that establishes our souls upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God that causes us to know and remember that Christ Jesus has delivered us from the dominion of sin and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And it's the grace of God that makes us prevail in our desire to live holy and righteous lives in submission to him. Do you know this grace? Is there evidence in your life that you've received this grace? The Apostle John tells us in our sermon text what the evidence of that grace will look like. In fact, he tells us what it looks like to have received God's grace and what it looks like to not have received God's grace. In verse six, he writes, whoever abides in Christ does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And then John writes again in verse eight, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. We read these statements and we ask ourselves, if the absence of sin is the distinguishing mark of a Christian, then how can I or anybody else have assurance of our salvation? This is a logical question because our life experiences tell us that we all continue to sin. Even after our uh, conversion to Christ, even after our regeneration, we all continue to sin. There's not a single Christian who does not continue to sin. So is John really setting the bar that high? Is he really saying that only those who have a life of sinless obedience to God can have an assurance of their salvation? Well, no, that's not what John is saying. Earlier in this same epistle, John makes it very clear that he doesn't believe Christians can live a sinless life. In, in chapter one, verse eight, he writes, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's pretty explicit. John is saying, don't, don't come around here and tell me you think you're a perfect Christian. Because if that's what you're saying, the truth is not in you, in you. you are deceived. And then again, at the beginning of chapter two, he writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And clearly John isn't trying to suggest that Christians are able to live perfectly sinless lives. Yet here in chapter three, he writes, whoever abides in Christ does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor knows him. He who sins is of the devil. And so how do we understand this? This is a case where the limitations of the English language make it difficult to accurately translate what has been written in Greek. If we were reading this in Greek, we wouldn't be having this problem. Uh, we would immediately see the, the distinction that John is making. The sin that John is writing about in our sermon text is ongoing sin. It's sin that persists over time. 
So John is, uh, is not writing about a, a single expression of sin or even a short season of sin. He's writing about the person who's content to continue sinning. He's writing about the person who's content to continue sinning. So when we read in verse six that those who abide in Christ do not sin, he's saying that those who abide in Christ are not content to continue in their sin. In other words, the Christian the Christian's life is not characterized by sin. Yes, there will be episodes of sin. Genuine Christians will stumble into sin on many occasions, even some of the big ones, right? Some of those, those big sins that we say, those are, those are the really nasty ones. Christians will commit those sins, but they won't remain in that sin. That's the point John is making, which is to say the genuine Christian will repent of his sins. He'll confess them to the Lord and turn away from his sins. Whereas the non-Christian will not repent. The non-Christian will continue in his sin, will persist in his sin and be quite content in doing so. So what does that look like in the real world that we live in? A Christian might give himself over to the sin of fornication for a short time, but he's not going to cohabitate with his girlfriend and live in a persistently sinful relationship with her. A Christian might commit the sin of adultery, but he's not going to maintain an ongoing adulterous relationship. A Christian might use pornography for a short period of time, but he's not going to persist over the long haul in that sin. A Christian might have occasional outbursts of anger and wrath, but that's not going to be characteristic of his everyday behavior. He's not going to be the person of whom you need to walk around on eggshells else you upset him. Do you, do you get the point here? Do you, do you see the difference between the one who commits sin and the one who persists in sin? As Christians, we all labor un, under the infirmity of the flesh, and so we struggle against the flesh. And like the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, we, we can truly say with him that when we sin, we are doing the evil that we don't want to do. And consequently, we're grieved over our sin. We're disgusted with our sin. And we repent of our sin. That's not the experience the children of the devil have. The children of the devil go back to their sin. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats its folly. And our sermon text is telling us that the person who persists in a course of sin has never truly beheld the glory of Jesus Christ. He has never seen the beauty, grace, fullness, and loveliness of Jesus Christ. He has never seen the Lord so as to enjoy him and have sweet communion with him. He has never, uh, never known Christ as his savior. For though he may profess to know Jesus with words, he denies the Lord with his very life. Luke 6, verses 44 and 45, for every tree is known by its fruit. 
For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart heart brings forth evil. This is what John is teaching us in our sermon text. The children of God are those who confess and forsake their sins, while the children of the devil are those who persist in their sins. And this is written to serve as a comfort for Christians. This was written to increase the assurance of salvation to everyone whose life bears the righteous fruit of repentance. John is presenting Jesus to us as our advocate with the Father. He's presenting Jesus to us as the propitiation for our sins. And if indeed, that is, if indeed we confess and forsake the sins, our sins in Jesus' name. So if your life bears the righteous fruit of repentance, brothers and sisters, then you can know with all certainty that you have redemption in Jesus Christ. And you have the unshakable promise that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.